You're listening to Were You Still Talking? Hey, welcome back to the show. This is Were You Still Talking? And I am still Joel Albrecht. And uh, my guest today on the show is uh, Betty J. Kovacs. Sorry, I'm staring at my notes, which I have a lot of today because she is an extremely accomplished uh, educator and writer and uh, speaker. Um, She uh, is recognized around the world and she shares her knowledge and passion through her books, speaking, teaching, media interviews in the United States and Europe. She speaks to national and global audiences throughout through webinars, keynote presentations and media interviews. She's received her PhD from the University of California, Irvine. Um, She's in comparative literature and theory of symbolic mythic language, which is a lot, partly what her, um, what we're here to talk about. She has a new book called Merchants of Light. Actually, I think the book came out almost exactly a year ago. Uh, Merchants of Light, the consciousness that is changing the world. It returns to our shaman mystic science heritage that carries the blueprint for heart consciousness. This blueprint is revealed in the heart wisdom of the mystic and in the new science of quantum physics. The return of this consciousness is changing the world. It's also about how um, how people changed stories, historic stories um, that come from shamanism and mysticisms into their own version of them, largely in order to control people. And um, yeah, and that's something we want to talk about. But first, I want—I was curious. Uh, when we look outside today, uh, I'm in Oregon, and it's uh, extremely smoky, and there's ash coming down, and there are people thinking, "Are is this the the uh, is this the end of the world?" <laughs> is that a question, <laughs> or what people no. are thinking? <laughs> no, that was just sarcasm. <laughs> what people are thinking? It was a question, um, but. Uh, the um, the idea of the book I've actually heard about for probably twenty years since my first kind of um, dabbling in in um, what do they call it uh, self help books and self help media and things like this. But you you actually take it a step further. You've researched um, mysticism for years and shamanism, and you have your own personal experiences. Um, with all this, what what first led you to to write this book uh, or to research that you know this area of research? Well, I taught uh, college students uh, mythic language, fairy tales, and it was during the counterculture. And the students were just incredibly interested in pursuing these ideas. And so we had a great time together, actually, of discovering the images and the stories and. Uh, the fairy tales. And so I taught that. I love that. Uh, Students were involved. And when I retired, I knew that I wanted to go deeper into it. Although through the teaching, I was learning as I went along. We all were. Mm -hmm. And it was a very exciting uh, subject for all of us. But I wanted to continue that research in a much deeper way. So I wanted to to know, given my own experiences, I wanted to know what the experiences were of my ancestors. Uh, You had mentioned my own experiences earlier, and yes, I did. I had uh, three deaths uh, in my family, my mother, one year, my son, the next year, and he died at the very, on the very same day and the same hour that my mother had died the year before. A synchronicity we don't understand, but Uh 
Uh, and then two, a little bit more than two years later, my husband died in a car accident. So there were three car accidents and three deaths within about three years. So um, obviously that uh, sternly stops, as the poet says, stops one. And uh, with that many deaths and so many synchronicities, uh, my husband and I did have in the, in the beginning, totally spontaneous uh, experiences with our son's uh, consciousness after he died. And, uh, and then and later, we use shamanic techniques, uh, meditation and that sort of thing. And we even use sacred medicine to, to a degree. But they all, everything took us to the same place. And Pishti's consciousness was fully present. And, and it was really very, very strong for over two years. And he was joyful. It was a very different universe, you might say. Mm -hmm. And he wanted us to know, to remember that there is no death, that consciousness does not die. And he also wanted to remind us of our choice to be born at this time, because the earth is going through some very powerful transformations, really trying to give birth to a new consciousness. And so a lot of information was about that. So and then my husband died. I also had some experiences with him, uh, both together, usually. So I thought, you know, I am sure from the study of fairy tales and prehistory and myths that our ancestors knew this. <laughs> and why haven't we received those messages? Why haven't the stories told us? Well, some did. But the ones that dominated, that had the power in culture, and other ones, ones who owned the narrative, you might say, they did not tell the same story. So I wanted to go back, and I went back to the cave cultures. And of course, <laughs> the experts on the cave culture, you know, <laughs> that, well, nothing can be said about it, they were saying for years. Uh, so they collected data, more data, more data, until finally there were two archaeologists who said, well, we can't know everything, but we can know some things. And they saw very clearly that these were shamanic cultures. And just in case we missed it, at Lascaux, there is a painting in one of the uh, deep pits, you might say, of the cave, which is clearly shamanic. It's uh, a bison dying, and there's a, a shaman lying on his back. He has an erection, which was a symbol of a higher state of consciousness going into another state. There was the staff with the bird, which is a very typical shamanic symbol of flying into the other world. And so we know they were shamans, but there are other uh, kinds of evidence as well. There were lots of dances and, and uh, we could see even from prints that were left in certain places. Uh, also, they probably used sacred medicine as our ancestors did for tens of thousands of years in a very sacred way to enter into an altered state and be in the spirit world. And we saw that, you know, in the, the faces of the rock were clearly uh, that, uh, that membrane between the two worlds. And you can see all the hands on it touching, getting the energy from the spirit world. But there's just so many, many things that make it clear that these people were shamans and mystics. And by the megalithic period, we now know that those huge megalithic structures, that repetition of the word really, mm -hmm. were all around the world. And they were both temples 
and observatories because they observed the cosmos. They knew of uh, precession. And in the temples, one could use that temple to help oneself stay in harmony with the rhythms of the universe, of the planet, the sun, and the moon, and stars. So these were both temples and observatories. They didn't separate them at all because it's all one. And so I began with these early forms and realized these people knew geometry and precession. I mean, they were brilliant. And for so long, we've looked at anything and anyone who came before us as less than, you know, we had a right. very right. <laughs> weird understanding of uh, evolution. And uh, that made us think we were superior in all things and was pretty detrimental to the planet. But uh, so then I went through uh, old Europe and the Egyptian and there's so much new scholarship on these cultures to show us so much more than we knew before. Mm -hmm. And First Temple Judaism and pre-Socratic philosophers, scholars in the last century told us things we had no idea about. These people were quite different from what we thought and had achieved uh, uh, certainly a, a shamanic, mystic uh, culture or, and sometimes scientific if they could last long enough, they would obviously use the conceptual mind to understand the experiences they were having. So that, I wanted to know, and I'm glad I did that research. <laughs> yeah, it's so it's so interesting because um, you know you skip ahead thousands of years, and the the people in the Americas before the Europeans came here were all practicing shamanistic type cultures. Not all, but most yes. had shamanistic type cultures that were quickly subdued by. Um, the other type, you know, the, compl the the European type of culture, which was our way is the right way. This is the only religion. We have to take away anything you believe in order for us to believe this. And what I've always wondered is like, did you, where does that, where did that begin? What, you know, what century, at what point did people start saying, well, in order to control people better, which is what this is, this is, this is about, right? In order to control people better, um, we need to make our own religions and, you know, tailor that religion to create a hell and create, you know, evil and, and say that the, this person's not us, so they're not as good. You know, what, when did that start? Uh, or did well, you or did you even find a beginning? Yes, it did. <laughs> well, a beginning, I'm not sure. <laughs> but uh -huh. at least I know the beginning I know is yes. uh, that in Margaret Barker has done extraordinary research in the first temple uh, Judaism. And that was, much to our surprise, a shaman mystic tradition. And in 621 BCE, there was a group of people, priests perhaps, who took over, took charge, and said they had found a new text within the temple. A strange story, of course. Right. And, and so they rewrote the stories. And they clearly were politicians who wanted power. But I think also they wanted uh, to preserve uh, the Jewish people. Uh, they thought they could do it I'm assuming that they had a good intention to preserve the people as a Jewish people. Mm -hmm. uh, and this was uh, before the exile, but that was always a problem within, well, among the Jews where they were. So they then got rid of the, the shamanic mystical part of the tradition. In other words, the first temple tradition was destroyed by these priests who were the Deuteronomists. 
And there was a beautiful tradition of soul in the first temple, of the feminine dimension of the divine, which is in everybody, male and female, but it was that creative, birthing, uh, loving soul image that we Mm -hmm. all have. Well, she was very dominant in the first temple, and the tree was her symbol, her symbol. It is the symbol of our soul. And they, the Deuteronomists, cut down, burned down all of her sacred groves, got rid of every image of her, and got rid of the wisdom literature that had to do with this mystical tradition. Now, the Jews took it. Some of them left. They were having none of this. And they went to Egypt and took the uh, text, thank heavens. And I think later during the exile, there were uh, priests, Jewish priests who also worked on maintaining that tradition in Babylon because it later emerges in Europe as Kabbalah. But the Deuteronomist then had an example of the narratives that they told which show us what they're attempting to do is the the tree. We all uh, grew up probably hearing that story that we were in a paradise at first with God and the angels, and there was all kinds of trees, but there was one tree that God said, you can't eat of this tree. Well, that was a tree of knowledge. Mm -hmm. Did we have a God who wanted us to be stupid and unconscious? Well, we do now. Oh, that's another (laughs) subject. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, indeed it is. So uh, anyway, uh, there we were. Don't eat it. Of course, any God ought to know, as every parent knows, if you tell your children, do you see this right here? Don't touch it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the first thing that they're going to touch, right? <laughs> so uh, at any rate, that's exactly what happened. Uh, Eve saw the tree. She went there with Adam, and there was a serpent. And the serpent said, look, God's lying to you. You're not going to die if you eat of this tree. So she took the fruit, gave it to Adam. They ate it. God came back, knew what they had done, and he punished them. And he exiled them, but he also cursed them and their lives. Uh, Eve would be cursed in childbirth. It would be painful. Uh, Adam would have to scratch the soil to get anything out of it, that that was cursed. I think that has some real ramifications for today. The way we have always treated nature since then is though we were to exploit it. Uh, one image later was to put nature on the rack and torture her secrets out of her. Well, what a way to not relate to nature. Right. So that's a, just a terrible story. And then God wants to be very sure that Adam and Eve know they're worthless. So he says, you are from dust and to dust you shall return. And then he exiles them from the garden. And just to show, just to realize how absurd and contradictory that was to the older tradition in Sumer, 2,500 years BCE, the tree of life, of knowledge. There really was only one tree in the garden, and that was a tree of life, which of course had knowledge and higher consciousness. And so you, there are images of the God on one side of the tree that has the fruit on it, and the goddess on the other side, the serpent behind, because the serpent was the kundalini energy, the rising spirit, and they're both holding their hands out to this fruit as if to say, eat it here, this is for you. It was never forbidden. Of course, it's our evolutionary blueprint, and it would not be denied by a divine being, but this is the story 
that the Deuteronomist told, which we can see what it did to people, to the value or their, their, their meaning, their, well, their worth. And uh, when the Roman church, after the, teach, the Jesus existence, the Jesus stories, then later came the church in fourth century, they kept that same ugly story. Mm-hmm. And, and, yep. uh, and of course, it just permeated Western culture. There are many others, many others that were inverted, turned upside down. And none of those stories were for our evolution or growth and development. None of them. But the earlier ones, of course, are. They carry the blueprint. Well, that's what's uh, interesting to me is you do give them, um, which I think is very kind, you do give them credit for for caring about people and, and actually doing this. Um, you say possibly they're doing it um, for good. They think they're doing it for good. Um, it's, uh, it seems to me they're only doing it for power. But uh, <laughs> You're that, really right. You're right. <laughs> but I mean, that was a question I had. If, if any of these people did have good intentions, I would hope they did. Um, but yeah, it seems like it, it didn't end well, um, you know, over the years has, has not gone well. And it, it um, creates all these confusions that we have about our self-worth. Um, and obviously when the, uh, you know, all of the stories from many different religions uh, are about how you don't have any self-worth, it, it's, uh, it, it makes it very hard to, to overcome that and to, you know, move towards a society where everyone has self-worth. I, you know, that's one of the things I see now is that so many people, um, because of these m- stories, um, they don't believe that they have worth, that only, you know, only leaders have any worth or only people with massive amounts of, well, material goods have worth. Uh, yeah, and that's... I don't know. It's just surprising to me. I don't know where my question is in that. (laughs) Well, you know, while you're thinking of it, (laughs) I want to say that the truth is what you're saying, because who would, who would deny human beings uh, the right to become conscious and to know who they are, that they are divine? And this is what the shaman mystics teach. We are divine. Everything in the universe is divine. And we are also immortal, that we were told we'd die if we ate of that fruit. And that's because the shamans and the mystics knew we are immortal. We do not die. And we are creative. And so if you want to control people, you tell them they're worthless, and you keep from them what they need. There's another uh, story, which which really shows us they knew what they were doing, because they said, you shall not make any art. You shall not create an image of anything in the heavens below or on the earth or in the waters beneath. Now, that's very interesting because we know that the creative right brain, the symbolic brain, uh, the language of that symbolic brain that connects us to our deepest selves and the universe is symbolic. It uses symbolic language. So if you tell someone, you cannot make any images, no art, of anything that you are cutting down the symbolic brain so that they can't find themselves. So there's something very sinister about it, and your description of it is uh, probably truer than mine. But I do think they wanted to keep the Jewish people together, but they only only they knew how to do it, and they would control us. And if any, I'm sure a parent might think I want my the best for my child, and therefore he's going to do what I say. Well, 
you know, it doesn't, it doesn't work out too well. And we're and, still in that kind of culture today. We listen to people who do not care what's going to happen to us very often. Yes. Yeah. And again, I mean, now it, it seems even more sinister in ways that these, these kinds of images are still being used to keep groups together. Um, and even more so. I mean, you know, if you don't follow this dogma, then you're not part of our group. And, and they use all these scare tactics in... That's right. In, Fear you know, is it. Yeah. If you, you know, in, in Nazi Germany, they just said, look, if you make people afraid and you offer them a solution, they'll do anything. Right. You, yeah. Yeah. And that was another, that was also based on, that's something that the Catholic Church, again, uh, followed along with, which always oh, yes. just shocks me. And, you know, but it was because they wanted, they thought he was going to win and they wanted to be where the power was. So that that's always kind of blown my mind. And I think people forget that, that the Catholic Church was backing Hitler and, you know, went along with his, what he was saying, which, uh, I don't know, it's, I it's just hard, shake my head right. when I think about that. Yeah, well, it's, if, it's if hard we to imagine. Back in the fourth century, when, when the church finally had the power to make Christianity the ruling religion, then everybody else's thoughts were negated. Every shrine, every temple, every tradition, the mystery schools, every, any, any way of thinking that did not follow the church's orthodoxy was destroyed. And I think we don't know well enough the history of how many thousands and thousands and thousands of people were murdered because they did not go along with that tradition. A religion actually should be to bind together, to do whatever they can to initiate and support our own evolution. But they were not going to do that. And we know that because they took the Jesus image, which in, there's a tradition that, uh, the hidden tradition that Jesus taught, which we know more about since the discovery of the Nag Hammadi text, which the church would not allow to survive. But after World War II, they were found, 1945. But in, in that tradition, uh, we can see that Jesus, and in other uh, sources too, that Jesus was a shaman. And Margaret Barker, who did the profound research on the first temple, she says that Jesus is a rebirth of that ancient tradition of the Jews' attempt to reestablish the shamanic mystic uh, tradition. And so they understood that, and in the Nagamati text, we can see that Jesus taught how we can achieve his state of consciousness. And he said, when you drink from my mouth, you and I are one. And he, yeah. Yes, that, and that I, it seems like that always gets confused, that, that, that even, even in the traditional text, it says the only way to God is through me. It doesn't mean the only way through God is through my religion, because he wasn't preaching a religion. No, he no. means that you're part of me. Isn't that correct? Yes, it's so correct. <laughs> and he said, when you, he said it, wasn't to be, it wasn't to follow Christ. I mean, that is very clear in the Nakamari text. It's not to follow him, but to become the Christ, to become the Christ, to achieve Christ or cosmic consciousness. And in the Nagamati text, there's a saying which I love, which is that if you bring forth, if you bring forth what is within you, it will save you. You do not bring forth what is within you. It will destroy you. 
<laughs> oh, that's yeah, that's beautiful, and that's uh, some that's something I hear. I hear preached all the time because I listen to someone named Michael Beckwith. I don't know if you're familiar yes, with him. Yes, yeah. he has a church. No, yes, he and I. I went to a church in Los Angeles to see the choir because somebody oh, said good. this yes. is an amazing choir. And yeah. so since then, I've uh, I've followed him. Sometimes I stray away, but he his uh, his ideas are very much like are very much what you're talking about. And yeah. I just really appreciate that you researched the you know the actual history of where this got mixed up because yeah. i mean all he talks about is christ consciousness and how we are all one oh, and you know yeah, and, exactly. and this is what christ was preaching yeah. about is that you you are the christ and um you know this it's just it's it's just so wonderful that um you did so much research to kind of show this to to show this in a scientific light and you know that's that's the amazing thing is is combining you know how do we combine the shamanic these shamanic ideas with science and and with you know the world today i guess and that's the wonderful thing uh, you know the writer and buddhist and therapist paul levy has said that quantum physics is our collective dream to heal ourselves and i love that i feel that too is that i used to say Quantum physics is finally a science worthy of the universe <laughs> uh -huh. because uh -huh. it's, we know, I mean, it is known through quantum physics that finally we have to recognize consciousness and as the creator of matter, you know, the old science before was that, well, where did consciousness come from? Well, it's epiphenomenon of the brain. Well, that was such no, so nonsensical. I mean, I, who did not have a scientific bone in my body in high school, I, I thought, there's something funny about that. But quantum physics, uh, not all of the physicists, but quantum physics, I think, understood in its broader sense, is that there is the knowledge that consciousness exists before, any, before matter. It is primary. And it is consciousness that creates the world, matter. And as one physicist said, uh, matter is how uh, the spirit looks in the physical universe. That's perfect. I love it, don't you? Yeah, that's that's beautiful. And then yeah. you know, if you if you work at it, you can find evidence of this um on your own through meditation or working with shamans or working exactly. on yourself that um I haven't yet, but I'm still working on it. But I <laughs> well, you know we all I, are. <laughs> yeah. I just but this. I you know, when I listen to someone like yourself, you've actually had personal experiences where you're speaking and and feeling energies from uh from places we can't physically see, but you know they're real. It's it, you know there's really no doubt about it, and uh, it, it's just that's, it's very yeah. That's exactly it. There is no doubt. It's as uh, some uh, scientists who've worked with the brain they say that when you experience spirit, when you're in that uh, part of your mind that allows that vaster consciousness to exist, it's like realer than real. You know it. And then you feel it, and they say now, too, feeling is a way of knowing. And that's absolutely true. You feel it in every cell in your body, and it's like, oh, my God, is this how this could exist? You know, I, I said in my first book that it's like dissolving the boundaries of that one square inch that I had been calling reality. <laughs> Oh, that's yes, yeah. And this this is available to all of us. People used to say to me, "Well, yeah, but that you you experience that." I could, yes, 
we all can we all have that ability and i think the most important thing in education is for us to learn how to use all of the apparatus that we are you know mm -hmm. it's that to how do we integrate the various brain components with the heart so that the that the body and the brain and the mind and spirit are one not separate of course we have to have a consciousness that limits us to the physical world so that we can find our way to the grocery store but we also then need to say okay now i'm in a place where i'm safe let's open up to that our children that is their heritage they deserve to know that and it's our responsibility to try to find out and teach them <laughs> oh yeah absolutely it's it's just, it's so hard sometimes when we're living uh in this physical world to to kind of see that this isn't everything. I mean, we we seem to have forgotten uh, everything that happened before we've come, and we seem to have forgotten everything that will happen after we leave, which isn't necessarily the future. It's it's somewhere else. I mean, that's what's confusing. But we see everything linear, and it, it's it's diff it's difficult for to differentiate um, between different worlds, but different worlds actually do exist as shamans and mystics and yogis and uh, even priests have been trying to teach us for thousands and thousands of years. Um, in some ways, I see more of it now. I see more people like yourself, you know, trying to, to describe to people um, how there's other there's things we've been missing, I guess. <laughs> and uh, no. on the other hand, there seems to be more resistance to it. Well, yes, we really are uh, up against uh, the, our opposites, you might say. But you know, when I was teaching in class uh, myths and symbolic language, over and over again, students would come to me after class, come to my office and say, I, I, I want to tell you something that I've never told anybody in my life. And very often it could be something that happened when they were very young. But all these students, but just about all of them, I think, had had experiences of other dimensions of reality, but they never told anybody because the worldview would not accept it. I mean, the old worldview that there's nothing but matter. Of course, we have that little problem of consciousness, but there's nothing but matter. You're a fluke of nature. There's no purpose and no meaning. And when you're dead, you're dead. So if they experienced something for years, it was everything that was uh symbolic or vision it was just hallucination mm -hmm. and so mm -hmm. we lived in a world that condemned everything and negated the meaning and value of everything and that's that is part of the church's responsibility as well because this one-sided science uh, we have began in 16 i would say 20 or 60 and the reason i say 1620 is because there were shaman mystic scientists around 1600. They really were a rebirth of these ancient traditions that had been undergrounded. But the church put a stop to that as soon as they knew what was going on, destroyed their texts, and broke up the whole party. And so all of them tucked tail and went back to their countries. And then in 1660, the Royal Society for the Study of Science developed. And all those people knew you do not study consciousness. You do not study spirit. Forget that. They wouldn't even mention it. There was only matter, and you either stuck to that or you could fear death. So 
The church was even responsible for this horrible science that we have. And of course, there were other, other people too, but that was certainly one of their responsibilities. But having, having lived in such a world, I mean, how could we become aware of who we are? I mean, we, we, we've been taught for years, decades, centuries, that we are nothing. And now with it take, I hope it doesn't take a hundred years for people to become aware of the new science, which is, oh, that was not quite right, guys. <laughs> you know, that's not the way it really works. I mean, we really are eternal. I mean, it, it's, yeah. we, it's, it's craziness. It, and it seems like there are possibilities that even that, um, that traditional science is starting to um, tap on that door a little bit because oh. especially with consciousness, there's more and more um, um, neurologists who are saying that, no, we really don't know where consciousness comes from. And not only do we not know where it comes from, we don't know where it is. Uh, it, you know, it appears <laughs> yeah. that every cell in our body has consciousness because exactly. cells can heal themselves and do all these things that they shouldn't be able to do um, because they're just cells. Uh, and so the, it's interesting how science is slowly starting to see that at least it's not, it doesn't have the answers. I well, don't know. <laughs> it really is. And those who are quantum physicists, uh, many of them don't yet see the larger picture, but all around the world, they are discovering things that when you put it all together, it's very clear that, in fact, many, in fact, the early scientists who discovered quantum physics in the early part of the last century, they started reading shaman mystic literature <laughs> because that's the only way they thought they could understand what is going on. It was something so much faster than the science they'd been involved in. They couldn't figure it out, but others did, given a little more time. So there are many wonderful uh, quantum physicists who know what the shamans know and what uh, the mm -hmm. mystics knew. And some of them even exp had those experiences themselves, those inner uh, shamanic experiences, we can call them. And mm -hmm. then that helped them to understand the science they were working with. So I think a huge, uh, a huge jump, a leap has taken place, and that eventually uh, all the science will come along with that. Well, let's hope, because it still seems to be taboo to talk in that um, outside of the scientific circle, in other words, because especially, I mean, even doctors and nurses and medical professionals who many of, many have had um, direct interaction with near-death experience or after-death experiences, you know, I, oh, absolutely. I, I, the, a lot of them, but they don't, they, f they think they'll be completely ostracized if they admit it to anybody outside of just in the hallway or something. And, and uh, yeah, so... That's, That's America, you know. Right. It's better. Yes. It's a better. It's better in the UK, and uh, for I had talked a couple of times when my first book came out. I was invited to talk at the scientific and uh, medical, <laughs> yeah, scientific medical network, and then I went back last year when this book came out. And the interesting thing is the first time I was there, there was quite a bit of talk about near-death experiences among the scientists. And several came from Europe who'd had, had worked with near-death uh, experiencers. But doctors were really becoming aware of this. And in Europe, I mean, in the UK at that time, and that was 2007 or something like that, the majority of psychiatrists had been trained in 
uh, near death, or as they say, it's not near death, it's actual death experiences. And they had so much evidence for it. And uh, evidence that consciousness uh, was not only present when the person was dead, but that they were experiencing things. Like one uh, story was a man saw a red tennis shoe up in the 11th floor on the outside windowsill. I mean, and he was, I don't know what room he was in, but he was dead. <laughs> and so they could check out things like that, or they knew things that were going on in their families or other places in the world. So they, as scientists, had no question about the fact that these things were taking place. They honored their patients, and they trained psychiatrists and many of the doctors. So a large number of doctors and psychiatrists are well-trained in that experience. And it was so funny, there was a conference one time in which people were getting up and saying, you know, what they had experienced when they died. They had this experience, that experience. And one cardiologist stood up and he says, well, I'm a cardiologist and I have never had a patient tell me anything like that. And so one of the men stood up who'd been giving his experience and he said, sir, you were my doctor and you were the last person I would have told. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so anyway, it's it's more accepted, I think, in uh, in Europe and the UK. But, you mm -hmm. know, Kenneth Ring and others have put out, out anthologies of the millions of people and who have had these experiences and describe, they let them describe them. So I don't have any doubt about that. And if I had had, I wouldn't have after my own experience with, with my son and that other dimension. Right, right. And that, I mean, that is, um, that's such a beautiful experience that you describe. I mean, that's the thing. It's not, it doesn't sound fearful at all. It doesn't sound, you know, no. painful. It sounds like it helped you get over, uh, get through pain, if anything. Oh, and it's, yeah, the opposite in a way of pain. Of course, there's still the mother and the father who, are in the physical world without that child or mm -hmm. any other family member who loses loses we say a loved one we do can't live life anymore in that way without that person and it we do grieve but when we have the experience of that other side and how much vaster this world is and and as they i always had the experience for me to remember there's only now in the universe the whole universe is creating in every time period you can imagine. <laughs> but I think just having, just having that experience and knowing that, oh, these stories of the narrative is so meager and so pitiful and so wrong <laughs> that we've <It's>, received. <laughs> right. And what, I mean, uh, what, what brought that on exactly? How does, I just don't understand why, People didn't, or did people resist these stories? And 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 they got killed. <laughs> they got killed. Yeah. Well, I mean, we know that happened in the U.S. I mean, uh, when Europeans came here, they literally wiped out entire, well, species, uh, tribes of people did. who didn't believe the same thing. Uh, and law, it, you know, it was supposedly in the name of land and all these other things, but it was also largely in the name of religion because, oh, it was. you know, they have a different religion and maybe that's a powerful religion. And, but they saw it as it's of the devil. But, you know, even the uh, emperors who uh, subsidized those who came to the new world were uh, given the information by several papal bulls that you, you, you own everything of these people. If you go in and you conquer them, their land, they themselves 
that all belongs to you. And they must believe as you believe. And if they don't, then you take away their privileges or kill them. That came from the church itself, the way white people, Europeans behaved when they came here. And the suffering has been, as we know, absolutely immense. But uh, obviously all for power. And just to jump back um, a moment about how it takes away from us who we are. I had two students uh, who told me, mentioned it to me, one became a Catholic and one became a Protestant after the classes. And they actually had had some, some experiences that were very, very healing and helpful to them. But after being a part of the church, they were convinced that those visions were of the devil. They oh, were that's of the terrible. Devil. I know. That's, that's sad to hear it's that. taking away yeah. our, abil- our shaman within us Mm-hmm. the divine, the Christ within us, taking that away and making it evil. And then if someone says, but they were so healing for you, so loving. Oh, the devil is very clever. The devil can do anything to convince. I am just, I, I, it breaks my heart, you know, to see that they let go everything that was theirs to the power of the church, just like some people do with the power of the government or other governmental agencies that tell us things not for our own good. And we're well prepared to listen. We are we're, we are well prepared to listen, and this is a, this is the thing that's always seems so twisted to me about um, teaching people about the devil and that um, what is that expression? The oh, the biggest trick the devil plays is that he doesn't exist, and um, oh, that's good. it's so twisted because. But you're using that concept to. In a devilish way. <laughs> so <laughs> basically, I always think, well, the only person that would say that is the devil, if one existed. <laughs> oh, so good. That is really good. But what, what is so sad is that I think that people who do not bring forth what is within them are the ones who feel empty, and therefore they must snatch and grab everything outside of them to feel meaningful. And that means for many that I must control you and oh everybody else if i can <laughs> so it's yes. a power yeah. the struggle for power is because we have not brought forth what is within us because if we did that we'd have this vast universe and we wouldn't want to control anybody but i think the church prepared cultures uh to follow the leader whatever they tell you because the church used certainly the devil but also if you didn't do and follow the orthodoxy you would go to hell and you would have eternal punishment. What a, what a horrible thing. And they had power. I can remember as a kid when I went to Sunday school thinking, how can I know that this is true? But then in my childish mind, I thought, well, it's been around for so long, it must be, because people wouldn't let it remain if it wasn't true. Oh, <laughs> well, how interesting. Yeah, and you know, that's, but uh, it's, for instance, the Albigensians in Southern France, they didn't believe the way the church did. And over uh, two, three centuries, they slaughtered them, absolutely destroyed that culture. So, but they destroyed other cultures as well. Now, I don't want to leave without saying that there are priests, uh, or let me say people to make it broader, within the church who are beautiful human beings and have done excellent work, sometimes in spite of the church, uh, but I'm talking about 
those in power. They controlled the narrative and they controlled a military, <laughs> you know, with the Habsburg dynasty. They could control people with that, with that power. But uh, that's not to say there is, there is nothing good <laughs> within it because there is. Well, it's, it's nice that you bring that up because there are very good people within uh, most churches. And, and, you know, there's churches yes. that are uh, saving, that are giving people water and, and food and oh, where that. no, you know, where no government does. Uh, there are, there mm -hmm. are churches that are helping all over the world in a lot of different ways. Um, the unfortunate thing is they want those people that they're helping to then believe in the dogma of their church. That's, uh, that's but, the that's, and that's not always true, but that's sometimes sometimes it, true. It is sometimes true because what does that do? I mean, I remember a person who was doing all kinds of things for children in Africa, but he was a Protestant, and that is what they taught, and that's what he wanted people to to believe. But you know, people have their native beliefs too. But I I just always felt there is such a a wrongness, uh, an unhealthy a push to want people to believe like you. I mean, if you care for them, you do for them. And by the way you live, if they wanted to be like you, to know what makes you happy, <laughs> then they could ask, <laughs> you know. But there's just so much that is pushed on others. Uh, yeah, that's a, and that's a wonderful thought. I just recently saw a post on some social media from a famous... Um, um, actor, movie actor, who is very kind to people and has always been known as a very kind person. And, you know, uh, he recently, it's not like he admitted it. He just said, well, this is why, because I, because this is the teachings of my church. And I've always been a member of this church. And this is, to me, this is the teachings of that church. And uh, so I thought that was very interesting, but he never had put it out there before. It's not like this is something... This, this doesn't come first, in other words. It's like, this is the, the last thing you yeah. need to know about me. All you need to know well, is how good. I treat people. Yeah. And that tells you about how I follow you know, my religion. So mm -hmm. I, th I thought that was very nice. Yeah, because nice. a major thing is to help the other. Yeah. Right. The, the most important thing was helping and being kind to other people and always treating other people kindly. Mm -hmm. And it's like, yeah, that is, that is the message of your church. If only other people could... Could get yeah. that message. <laughs> that's a, yeah, that's a, yeah. <laughs> and it's a wonderful message. I mean, I, my brother and I, my parents didn't go to church, but they were not non-believers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I mean, mm -hmm. I think they sort of had the attitude, there surely is something, <laughs> you know. But at any rate, uh, we would find a church where they had a good children's program and we'd go together. And I can remember, I think it was... Uh, I don't know even what kind of church it was as a child, but they told uh, stories and they had, I don't know if you've ever seen the old felt boards where they put the figures on and it'd stick to the felt. They tell the stories of cheese little, little before your time. <laughs> but at <laughs> any rate, they, uh, I remember those stories about Jesus and he, and the uh, living a life of service and love and acceptance because Jesus didn't, uh, reject people because they were a prostitute or killer or anything else. And the Jews did often, but mm -hmm. he did not. He was a very admirable. So here was a concept of a person who was truly uh, a socialist, you might say, in right. the good sense of that term. Right. And and loving and kind and accepting, a wonderful ideal. And so I'm grateful to the church for those teachings. 
for telling me those stories as a child. Yeah, those are and those are beautiful stories and beautiful teachings. And that's the that's the thing that I can't get straight in my mind is that there. <laughs> Uh, the only he he accepted everyone except the uh, massively wealthy. Those are the people that he <laughs> went to and you know tipped over their tables and and threw their coins in the air and said you you'll never get to heaven this way. And a yet, cautionary tale. Yeah, a cautionary <laughs> tale. And yet this is the this is the same this is the same religion that is now taking over some governments and wanting everyone to live you know to be to be concerned basically with material things only. And mm. it, it, yeah, I don't, I don't see where that connects. It, it just, doesn't yeah, make no, sense. It, does it not, doesn't make sense. I wish that more. And that was one reason for writing the book too, is that I have uh, in there about the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Nagamati text. But the Jews who were around the Dead Sea and had their library there, many of the texts were found in the caves there. They were not happy with the Second Temple tradition. And they said, we carry the true covenant, which meant they were shaman mystics. And some of them oh, okay. were pretty severe, you know, but nevertheless, they did not accept the second temple, all of those changes. And, uh, and then later, there was Jesus, who Margaret Barker believes was the rebirth of that first temple tradition. And then that was taken away again, you know, so it's by the, by the Roman church. So there've been, and I also realized that for instance, in the Egyptian culture, uh, archaeologists have said just crazy things, that they were really not a spiritual people, they this or they that. They could not see, I mean, and given all the ruins, you take a look at it and you think, these people must have known something. But now, uh, Alison Roberts and also Jeremy Nadler, excellent scholars, Jeremy wrote uh, about the shamanic texts that, that are in the pyramid. He saw they were shaman mystics. And Alison Roberts has looked at the paintings that have been restored on the wall and much of the, many of the texts that are restored and found. And it's very clear that these priests and priestesses were powerful shamans and mystics and scientists. And it, it's just amazing, the rituals. I have uh, Robert's book of several of the rituals and they are so profound. I keep going back through them, trying to understand them. But it's very clear that they understood about consciousness and heart consciousness and how to nurture it and, and give it birth. And we've just dismissed them. Well, now we can't. And even with the pre-Socratic philosophers who came before Plato and during, and they gave Plato a lot of information he didn't have. It was kind of reduced to just the rational later, but the pre-Socratic philosophers coming from Anatolia, from Turkey, over to uh, Italy, they actually, they were ambassadors, scientists, um, what else can we call them? Certainly shaman mystics. They worked with people and had a way of helping people go into a deeper state of consciousness so they could heal and experience a larger state of consciousness. And I must say, it's Peter Kingsley, who went against all of the academics in reading and translating uh, what they had done. And a whole world opens up. When I was a student, I couldn't find any comment about a shaman in relation to Greek uh, culture. And he has shown how all the way from Spain, all the way through the Middle East and Southern Europe, all the way into Central uh, Asia, there was a shamanic tradition. 
that was in contact with each other. You can tell from the poetry. I mean, we didn't know this. And we, there's, who we really are has been so submerged that we're shocked when we discover the vastness of those cultures. And it may, I mean, any culture that creates that much, uh, that much art and has, you know, that much uh, symbol, symbology and artwork in their, in everything they do, it's, it's not surprising at all that, that, and also obviously put so much attention on death and death rituals. And so it, it may, even from a novice point of view, it totally makes sense to me that they would be in shamanism and shamanic uh, rituals. It's like we don't have to be an archaeologist to yeah. figure that out. Right. But but it now Egypt was not uh uh repressed and suppressed by the church. I think some of these cultures did just it just happened through the vicissitudes of history. But the Greeks did not no they, they didn't have the awareness that the Egyptians did. And even the philosophers will say that themselves. I mean, and some of the uh, Egyptians were known to have said that the Greeks just can't quite understand it. But I think that's because they didn't develop uh, a full tradition as the Egyptians did. They did have Eleusis, the mystery school, in which the ritual certainly, if you went to Eleusis, and it was a long, quite a process of preparing for it, that everybody had a vision which convinced them that there was no death. Now, they did use sacred medicine, Kikaeon, I believe it was called, and uh, so that everybody had the vision at the same time, but whoever went to Eleusis no longer feared death, is what they said. But the Egyptians seem to have uh, developed not only that, but a powerful understanding of, of tr really deep transformation of the human being. Yeah, that's, it's really amazing, um, all, all of that history there. Um, Oh, okay. I'm looking at some notes here. <laughs> I mean, how did that, uh, how did our ancestors, how were they different from us? Um, and how did, um, what kind of, of gifts would they provide us today? Well, I think, yeah, that they were, we have the same uh, anatomy <laughs> since 200,000 BCE, mm -hmm. and here by 40,000 all around the world, we were sort of learning how to, to use it. You know? And I think we lost some of that. We need to learn again because we have that ability. But the gifts that they gave us really were the knowledge that we are divine, that we are immortal, we don't die. That's what everybody else wanted us to believe, that we die and that we're uh, not uh, divine and that we're not creative, that you have to follow what I tell you to do, you know, and uh, that was pretty, uh, pretty bad, but we're still doing that today. And it's just that the so many people know how to cover it up better, but we truly need to be able to recognize the Deuteronomists of our own time in order to save ourselves and to save these traditions. Uh, so I think that uh, the gift is the knowledge of who we really are. Mm -hmm. How we can, the blueprint is what I call it in the book. It's the blueprint of our evolution. Which and is that story. That blueprint seems to be forgotten as soon as we come into this physical world. Do you think, that, I mean, do we, do you think we go through this process over and over? Or, um, I hope not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I really hope not. 
<laughs> I mean, it seems like some people, uh, you know, I've, I listen to a lot of people who seem to awaken, uh, many of them spontaneously. Um, Eckhart Tolle mm-hmm. is an example where yes. he, he knew nothing about mysticism. He knew nothing about spiritual teachings whatsoever. And one day he's sitting on a park bench and everything kind of came to him and he awoke. And, um, you know, it's, it's a pretty incredible story. Um, so I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm always wondering, and, and what do you think of, of, uh, why do, you know, why do we come into this world with so, such a small amount of knowledge of who we are and how do we, how do we, how do we, uh, you know, what can we do to improve on that, to, to, um, to remember Remember yes. ourselves. To remember. To remember. <laughs> I remember Arthur Miller and his writing used to say, remember to remember. <laughs> well, I think that it seemed to be the natural way of, of being in the world when we look at the cave cultures. And let me just say one thing or two about the sand wishmen in the Kalahari Desert. They have the ability that through dancing and singing to go into cosmic or Christ consciousness not what they would call it, but to go into that uh, high level or that vast level of consciousness. And they do it communally, like they dance with each other. And there are many shamans, uh, both a male and female, in, among the uh, Sandwishmen. And uh, one person who did so much work with them is uh, Bradford Keeney. And he, actually, it was a vision that took him to the Kalahari Desert. Even he had a dream showing him exactly where to go. And when he went across the desert, they came running toward him and saying, welcome, we have been waiting for you. But these people, they say 65,000 years. Uh, archaeologists put them later than the cave cultures, but it could very well be that they're right and that they, fed, that they actually influenced the cave cultures. But the fact that they knew this and their culture was, uh, well, of course, they have no possessions. They live in the desert, and they have all kinds of abilities that we don't have. Uh, some, the heart will just start tapping a little bit when someone needs to get in touch with them, like a phone call. They have that ability wow. within them, but that they have the ability of, of this cosmic consciousness. And so Bradford told them, he said, you know, this is uh, done in India and another place in the world, but people sit by themselves and meditate and go into that. And they say, oh no, not alone. They just couldn't imagine that <laughs> someone wow. would want to do that alone. It is uh-huh. communal. And they have kept, in spite of the fact that people have murdered them, killed them. In fact, uh, the government of South Africa issued licenses to go hunting them until the 1930s. Can you imagine that? Whoa. Yeah, like they, we knew nothing. We just. Uh, there's a s- similar story in America. That, yes, yes. You know, yeah. It was and after in, the 1930s that certain people could be yeah. basically hunted and no one, yeah. would, it wasn't legal, but no one would look at it. Look. Yeah, well, this was even legal. Yeah, this but, was even worse. But these are beautiful people who have a sense of just, I mean, the joy in their lives. <laughs> well, they, I'm using them as an example because evidently they did pass that knowledge on. That's a part of who they are. And they're being destroyed. There are a few elders still alive and others, but they're really reduced to a small area in Namibia and Botswana. But they so trusted uh, Bradford Keeney because he could, he could achieve everything they could after being with them for 20 years. He didn't live there constantly, but back and forth. And so they gave him sacred scriptures 
and he was able to publish that in this country. So that's good. They're trying to give that to us. But they were a culture who kept that. And it was among themselves, whereas probably in Egypt, there were, I don't know how many people actually had those techniques or were a part of the temple. But I think that we shouldn't come in not knowing anything. We should create a, a true civilization. It's not what we think it is. It's a civilized way of igniting and reminding our children who they are and teaching them these techniques. I think that is a true civilization that those of us who can remember or have had experiences that we try, we want the young to, to inherit their true heritage. That is their heritage. We have severed them from their heritage and ourselves, we were severed from it. Mm -hmm. And so I think again and again, people who wanted power destroyed that knowledge, severed us from that so that our civilizations then became fighting and power and money and, and just conceptual knowledge, you know, because we teach our children in school how to think, how to be logical and rational and that sort of thing. But we don't, we don't bring into their awareness that they have all of these brain components that can do so many things and certain techniques would help them connect to the heart, which is the largest and most powerful brain component. And if we can connect to the heart, which we've always said, you know, I don't care what you feel, I don't want to. Well, feeling, feeling is a very root of, of consciousness. We have to feel. So if we can connect to the heart, then that can ignite love and feeling and memory, <laughs> memory, and so that we don't have to come in. You know, I sometimes think, I do not want to come back and have to start all over. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's interesting. Maybe that's why, if we do keep coming back and doing this over, maybe that's why we forget everything, because <laughs> that makes it easier. We, I think we can play better games. <laughs> we could. Uh, <laughs> you know, and if we could remember that, we could be able to play bigger games, better could, games, more loving games. Yes. And the idea of teaching kids um, f about the heart, um, it, it, it's really hard because... Currently, in America, when they have to cut budgets to schools, which they do every year, they keep cutting back and cutting back and cutting back. What do they cut first? They cut art and theater and anything to do with art. And then slowly they cut sports, which also has to do, you know, whether, I don't know what you believe about sports, but that also has to do with the heart. People, you know, sports oh, can absolutely. awaken uh, those kind of physical ideas you know, Absolutely. can awaken what's in you. That's, a, that's also a creative endeavor. And those like, are the first yeah. things schools want to cut. Not that I don't believe in math and science, but you, those should not be the first things cut. <laughs> that, Absolutely not. And you yeah. think of dancing. You know, uh, I'm not much in sports. My husband was. I mean, he was very mm -hmm. much involved in sports. But uh, dancing... Well, I wasn't involved in that either until I met him. <laughs> because why? I mean, pretty. I was in a place, my parents went that, but the culture pretty much uh, did not allow dancing. And so I didn't really learn. Oh. And my husband couldn't even, he couldn't speak without dancing. You know? So I kind of, he was born in Hungary and then came as a refugee to this country. I met him in Europe when I was working there. But he, he really awakened a lot of those things of sports and music and singing and that kind of thing. But it's true. That's what's always cut. And, but, you know, the 17th, in the 1700s was supposed to be our great renaissance, you know, the great enlightenment. It was not. In the 1600s, 
those people were working for a true enlightenment that would ignite the whole brain mm-hmm. that, uh, and the heart. They were the ones I talked about earlier, the shaman mystic scientists that were destroyed. They wanted a culture that uh, would, would be as we've been describing, but that it would bring an enlightenment to the whole world they, had, they wanted, new ways of teaching, new kinds of education, and all kinds of things. They were destroyed. So in the 1700s, when the enlightenment actually came, what were these people saying? Everything that came to before is nonsense. This is the apex. We, here in Europe and France, for example, <laughs> we are the apex of all knowledge. We have achieved the differentiation of the rational mind. And so it was saying symbolism, dreams, visions, shaman, that's a nonsense. And I can remember when I was, uh, started teaching, had a very good friend, had a good sense of humor, but he said, whatever you do, don't mention the word shaman. <laughs> and wow. one of his friends said, oh, God, tell her, don't ever write anything about alchemy. <laughs> so this is the way it was. But they, they just dismissed and devalued every mode of feeling and thinking that came before. And so our education is based on that. And it's a disaster, as we see. And yeah, that... we, oh, I was just going to say very quickly, where do we go from there to artificial intelligence? I mean, talk about having someone dominate us. I mean, what, what is the, the dead end of that run? You know? Right, right. And yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, yeah, the education system, there, there's very small movements in education to start bringing in things like yoga and meditation. Um, unfortunately, the the reason the way that motivates them is kids being really um, having problems, having you know that that it can help with anxiety because a huge percentage of kids now seem to have anxiety. I think I had anxiety when I was a kid too. I mean, it's an it's an anxious time to go to school, uh, but well, what you know, yeah. whatever the reason, um, it would be great if they could. I mean, those things would be are really important to bring to schools, yeah, and it it's it's really hard to, can yeah the the education system is so um, uh, so full of dogma, and and it's so hard to get anything new to to start to move. I mean, just the textbooks alone are thirty years old, and they're wrong. I know <laughs> it's bizarre. <laughs> it's it's true. It, you know, uh, Heart Math uh, Institute. Is, uh, is wonderful in their scientific um, research on the heart as part of the brain. Mm-hmm. And they have worked with students who were having difficulty learning and who were aggressive and to the point of violence sometimes, but, uh, and people in grief. They uh, really, one can just go to heartmath.com and just find out so much information. Those students who, were taught to work from the heart, to breathe in a certain way that brings a coherence of the various brain components together in the heart. Those students did much better uh, intellectually, uh, academically, and they also were less violent, less aggressive, and happier. So heartmath.com is a, one can really learn a lot. You can even get a little, the little machine, I guess you call it, in which you uh, clip it to your ear or your finger, and your breathing, it'll tell you when your breathing is coherent. So when you practice that, that coherence brings all these components together, and the practice of it uh, could help them to come together more often. But I think this is a wonderful thing that we need to know more about. Absolutely. Yeah, breathing's a... 
breathing has been getting a lot more intention in, in my world anyway, for some reason. I, I keep seeing all these people who are um, talking about how we don't breathe and doing breathing exercises and mm-hmm. all these different things. Wim Hof is one of them. They, they also uh, um, combine cold therapy and all these insane things with it. But the, the <laughs> art of breathing is a big one that um, really can help people. I mean, I really can help people learning, learning to just to learn to breathe again. And yeah, if kids could learn, start learning at a young age. Young. Um, then it'd be more natural for them. It would be more natural for them. you can and, yeah. bring the blood pressure down by 20 points within yeah. a minute or two by breathing. So well, I just watched David Blaine go to 20,000 feet in the air and still have good oxygen, which is nearly impossible. And he did that simply from breathing, He from breathing really? exercises. He Yeah, it was a crazy oh, stunt my. that he did. He went up with a, a balloon. He, anyway, he, he's on <laughs> his a, own. He's outside <laughs> holding onto a balloon with a harness and all this n- fancy stuff. <laughs> But he's outside on his own. That I mean, that, most people would, would die at 20,000 feet. He's got I no sure equipment. Would. They finally convince him to put oxygen on before he's going to um, jump out of this contraption. Just but in case. <laughs> it, it was, yeah, just to make sure he was mental faculties were, were there. But he could get his oxygen down, um, he could up into the 90s just from doing breathing oh, techniques. Amazing. And it's all in his, it was all mind over matter, you know. It's all about, no, I can do this and, well, that and being again. able to do it. It's just such an example of what we can do mm-hmm. that we haven't tried maybe before is that, you know, there now scientists tell us that every thought, every feeling gives ripples throughout the entire universe. <laughs> so, I wow. mean, we're just beginning wow. to remember, I think, to wake up. There's so much I want to learn to, to be able to be, you know, and I mm-hmm. think we're beginning, we're beginning. And I just hope that we will prevent forces that would like to take that away again from us. We've got to be conscious of that possibility. Uh, that's true. And uh, Yes, a lot of us hope this. And I mean... Uh... The Earth, the universe is all cycles, so um, we hope the cycle ends soon. That we're on. And we <laughs> for hope some that, of us <laughs> that those circles will be a spiral, so but, that we're, uh, we're yeah. you know that is circling around, being really going up, so that we can play better games, you know, it's, and love more and experience more. <laughs> oh, I love that. I love that. A spiral, spiraling upwards. That is. Uh, well, it's a beautiful place to end because uh, I can't open my windows and it's getting really hot in here. <laughs> <laughs> wow. It's That's... even smokier now than when we started. But... <laughs> okay. Well, I'll let you go then. <laughs> um, it has been fantastic to have you on the podcast. Oh, I, I really appreciate it. I love talking with you. Thank, thank you. you. I love talking with you. <laughs> uh, thank you. Uh, you've been listening to... Were you still talking? This is Joel Albrecht, and I have been uh, speaking with the absolutely amazing Betty Kovac, and uh, we've been talking about her book, and and not and and far outside her book, um, about shamanism, mysticism, the history of how we change from being a heart culture to how we might change back to being a whole culture. And I'm trying to find the name of her book. I'm getting I it. going to be here. I got it. Merchants <laughs> of Life. The Consciousness That Is Changing the World. And that will uh, be in the show notes as well as the other uh, site we just talked about for Mind Consciousness. Thanks again for listening. As always, be good to each other. 
And be good to yourself. Okay. Thank you so much. Are we off?